It's the official tapes, the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for the official releases. Every so often, we like to crack into an interview. And not only are we going to talk with a deadhead, but he's a total gearhead. He was the guitar tech for Cubensis. He was in Graham Lesh's band, Midnight North. Now, he's going solo. I'm Alex Jordan, and my record is called The Subtle Exhibitionist. When we discussed his album, we didn't talk about the songwriting perspective or what did this song mean, but we mainly talked about it from a gear and equipment standpoint. We dive in deep when it comes to gear. But first, he shared information about one of Garcia's guitars, Alligator. Jerry used this guitar in the early 70s, including the Europe 72 tour, and then the guitar went MIA for decades. I was actually sort of involved in the restoration of Alligator. You know, Jerry was such a technician with his instrument. Andy's one of the coolest, nicest human beings in the world, and so is his family. My name is Andy Logan, and I live in Woodside, California. Andy is, is a real smart guy and just wanted to have a second opinion from a guitar player. The Alligator, it's the first Frankenstrat. What a great human being and sort of the perfect person to be the caretaker of that gear. Just the amount of people that have said that Europe 72 was a really important album and getting them in- interested in the music. And having that guitar used in that tour you know, makes it super special. It has a name, right? Alligator. <laughs> so, so I went down with him when some of the first restoration work was done at Rick Turner's. Alex Jordan, who's a big gearhead and you know um, has been a member of Midnight North and now is going out on his own. Great player and a great friend. And, and I was the first person to play it after it got the electronics squared away at Rick's and, and uh, I was I played it rather miserably just because it was the action still needed work and you know I was nervous and all this kind of stuff but it was really informative to, to play that instrument but it was really really neat experience. No one's kind of known for sure where it was all these years so we really haven't known exactly what it was if you look at the Garcia website as an example jerrygarcia.com you know which is run by the family it says the guitar is a 57 neck with a 63 body. So people were wondering, you know, what is it really? You know, is the body truly 50 or 63? And is the, is the neck a 57? Are those reversed? You know, I've seen some speculation on dead forums that that was actually wrong and it was reversed, that it was an early 60s neck and a 50s body. But I can tell you that we, we looked at it and we were able to take the neck off and, and see where they would write dates and it is a 55 neck and a 55 body so we know we know a lot more just in two days than we knew a few months ago you know i I just can't say enough great things about about andy and um and working with him was just was just so wonderful there's in many 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 ways the record would not have gotten on its feet um without him I'm currently, from where I'm sitting, looking at two pedal boards, and I know that I have at least two more out of sight. I think the temptation, not even the temptation, when you're live, you know, you need to cover a lot of ground in performing, and, and there's a lot of different tones uh, you want to get, but it's not necessarily the pure tone of your amp. You know, you've got uh, overdrive pedals and delay pedals and reverb and, and choruses and all kinds of stuff to achieve 
you know, different effects on the guitar, you know, sort of in an effort to make it more interesting or find more textures. But I, I wanted to make a record that was really pure in terms of guitar tone. And so the idea was rather than spend any effort finding effects and things like that, spend all the effort in getting, you know, finding the appropriate amplifier. At the time, I had probably three or four uh, personal amplifiers, and then there were also two or three at the studio. And so the idea was just to never try to augment what the amplifier did on its own, but in, instead intentionally uh, utilize that amp and try to get the sound that it produced. The same goes for organ. You know, any any sounds you hear on the organ, it's just the Leslie cranked up, you know, and anything that's on board. And so with the keyboards, the, the Wurlitzer that's on there, same idea. That was the idea, just to, to utilize the amps and things in a really pure way. One of my main amps is a weird little amp that I found on Craigslist, sort of your modern equivalent of a pawn shop. Someone had just modified an old, like an old monoblock tube stereo amp, you know, so you just like you'd have two of these sitting next to your receiver and that would be how you powered your speakers. And, you know, whoever got this thing modified it to be somewhat like a early 60s fender circuit, what they call a brown face circuit. But then they added a couple other tweaks to it. And I didn't know any of this when I bought it. I just thought it sounded really cool. And that was one of the main amps I was using. But if I put a Stratocaster through that, it sounds completely different than if I put my Gibson 335 through it. You know, kind of utilizing those relationships to get the different tones. I have other amps too, you know, things that are like twin reverbs. And there was another, an amp at the studio that was a Vox AC15, which is what the Beatles, similar to what the Beatles used and, you know, Brian May might use. And those are all AC30s, just the bigger version of that amp. We could even devise a way to plug into multiple of the amps at the same time. And so one guitar through two or three of the amps would sound different than a different guitar through those amps. And, and that's sort of how we went about it. Just a, a mild amount of trial and error, but mostly me just trying to get the most out of the each amp I owned and each with each guitar. It's a symbiotic relationship, right? I have, um, I forget how many guitars I used on the record, but I made a pact with myself that I would use all of the guitars I owned that I could think of a use for and any that I didn't use, I would get rid of after the sessions. And uh, it worked. <laughs> uh, I think I got rid of four. I've gained one since then, but that uh, was after. Yeah, but I still have a bunch. <laughs> We didn't want to augment or process things. I mean, obviously, there's things you do in mixing, but it, you're not dramatically changing the tone. You know, it was all about capturing the tone. I made a goal with the exception of one guitar track. My goal was to play all the guitars because at the time I was touring with Midnight North, I was the full-time keyboard player. I wasn't always the, the keyboard player in that band, but as the band evolved, that's just what my role became. And so knowing that I would spend three, four, five, six weeks on the road doing nothing but playing keyboard, I wouldn't even bring a guitar it wouldn't be unusual that I wouldn't touch one. And then I would get in the studio and have to practice for three or four days before we got into the studio. And just, I wanted to kind of make it a goal to do nothing, to do all the guitars. You know, I left it open for all the other instruments. And so we wanted to do that. The only other guitar player on there is Matt Descala, with whom I co-wrote the song To Be Whole. And so he wrote the guitar part, so it just made sense to have him play it. Otherwise, the goal was to play all the guitars and all the guitar solos and stuff like that. And then also, I wanted to use the same drummer on every track, because I thought that would be a good unifying thing. So that was Sean Nelson. We rehearsed 
three or four times a couple months before we even got into the studio. And he just absolutely knocked out of the park. I'm, I'm just, every time I listen to a selection or something from the record, I'm just blown away with his playing still. You know, and it's been years at this point since we started doing this, and I'm still blown away with what he put down. I sort of wonder, like, was I attracted to, in some aspect, to the Grateful Dead because they were just such a gear nerd type band or did I become a gear nerd because of being into their their stuff and I think that goes for other things too you know I mean in John Mayer's case when he was younger I'm sure he was listening to you know Hendrix and Steve Ray Vaughan and anyone in that kind of world and there's a very well documented gear list for those players and that's not nearly as extensive as the dead, but it's the same thing where you can, you know, what was this guy using on this recording? Ah, it's exactly the, this amplifier, this guitar with these speakers and these pickups, etc. And so I suspect that the Grateful Dead sort of uh, cursed all of us in the jam band world to be gearheads just because they were. But it also, I think it makes sense, you know, that one of the things that the jam world tends to prioritize is tone. If you want to say, you know, I'd really love to get the guitar on this to sound like uh, the guitar on Graceland. There's a, a specific way that he achieved that guitar tone. And I could rattle off into, into what it is, but it really doesn't matter because this, one person will look it up, one type of person will look it up and learn and then do that. Another type of person will just experiment until they figure it out. I mean, one of my all-time favorite records from both a production and a writing standpoint, a musical standpoint, is Dark Side of the Moon. There's a great documentary that, you know, is the making of Dark Side of the Moon where they talk about what they did and, and why. And I could watch that three times in a row and not be bored of it. There's a similar thing that came out that breaks down every single Beatles recording and what they did and, you know, what they did to get the get sound. And, and you could listen to like early takes. They, ha they have all the masters. You can listen to early takes of songs. You can hear the songs develop. That's all just wildly fascinating. And all the engineers were trying to do then is capture the performances of these bands in a way that translated. And there's just so much imperfection on there, not just within the performances, but within the recording, the quality of the recording and the, the editing and stuff like that. And it's just, your brain just sort of forgives it and accepts it because it's, it's a part of it. It's a part of the magic of what makes it cool. And so we definitely relate more to that. You know, again, I think part of me being the, liking the live performance pressure and the imperfection of a live performance it's that same thing i definitely relate more to that than i relate to this sort of cookie cutter let's you know do the a section and then you can you know cut and splice the a section later do the b section cut and splice the b section later it's not that i think that anyone who writes music that way isn't an artist it's just that i don't relate to that process and tone is not just you know your guitar or your keyboard or your bass sounds good or your drums sound good you know it's how well are you able to express through the tone of your instrument? You know, jam music is such an expression-based genre that I think that it, it really sort of lends itself to that, where it's like, well, okay, if you really want to get your voice to come through, you got to find your voice. These are the, th the ways to do it. These are the things you can modify to do that. And, you know, you start playing something and you just, it, it's not about whether it sounds like someone else and more about whether it feels natural to play it. And I don't know that it matters to be reverent or knowledgeable for older music. I think it helps, you know, when you're creating art that's going to appeal to more than, say, just a, um, a younger or newer fan base. You do want to understand how music got to where it is, but that definitely is requisite in, in terms of making the music and playing it. And there are certainly plenty of people who couldn't name 
any gear that the Grateful Dead ever used, but still like them. And that goes for any band. There are people who couldn't name a single track, you know, by title off of Dark Side of the Moon, but definitely, you know, could still like the album. And and I think that it's important to remember as a performing musician and a writing musician and a, a working musician that you have to be a fan too. There are many ways to be a fan, and there's no wrong way to be a fan of something, so long as you're not hurting anybody, you know? <laughs> The second band I was ever in is called the Uncommon Sense. I refer to it as my college band, but it was my high school buddies. And, and just when I was home in the summer, we would play, you know, five, six shows, uh, you know, over the three months. It was a lot of fun. And we were decent for uh, our age, and, and we were probably mostly good at singing. So we wanted to make a record, and, and we'd, had, we'd made one in, in my living room. And my parents had sort of decided that, that uh, once was enough with that, because, you know, again, it wasn't one weekend, it was four. So we, looked, we were shopping around for studios, and uh, the drummer we were in at the time had said, you know, he'd heard of this place, Hyde Street Studios, and, and thought it was worth a look. And uh, we wanted to record to tape. We thought it was going to be really cool to record to tape. So we, we found a place that had tape and, and an engineer that had a reasonable rate, and uh, we went and worked with this engineer. I think his name's Nigel Paveo, and he worked at Hyde Street Studio C. And so we got into the Hyde Street C and, and got set up and everything, and, and then I noticed in the hallway, you know, they got pictures of, various acts that have recorded at Hyde Street Studios. And I noticed that it, it said, one of them said, oh, American Beauty is recorded in Studio C. And then I, then I realized that Hyde Street Studios used to be called Wally Hyders. And that's where they recorded American Beauty. And I think they did a similar thing in L.A. with Working Men's Dead. I, I think I've got that right. And I didn't know that before we got into it. And, um, you know, then I just started, as we recorded vocals and guitars and things like that, just started to listen to the room. And, and I could be nuts, you know, I could just be totally hallucinating. But I think that there's a part of me that feels like listening to other recordings. And I found other stuff besides American Beauty, but other recordings that were recorded in that room that you can kind of hear it. Because every recording has artifact of the, the space it was in. You can kind of hear that. And so Midnight North uh, ended up doing some basics there for our uh, second record uh, with the same engineer, Nigel. And uh, it was neat to go back there. But it, it just, it, studios were built so different then <laughs> you've got hardwood and flagstone and you know no parallel surfaces and you know modular wall coverings and things it's just really well done and it's just it's, it, it shows you know the rooms just sound really cool A friend of mine calls it the, the sports gene, just like being able to remember all kinds of facts about stuff and, you know, and, and put them in context. You hear people say, oh, I don't, you know, I feel like I was born in the wrong era. I don't feel like I was born in the wrong era. I love my iPhone. I love the internet. I love, you know, technology. But I also have a real, and I'm not quite sure why uh, this, when this developed. I, I could probably guess why, but I'm not sure when. And I, I have a real affinity for the older sounds and styles of things. And, and going back to what I said earlier with the record, there's a purity to it because you couldn't do as much with it. And so your, your best bet was to record it as best you could. And in the relatively short amount of time you had, you know, to, to work on stuff to get a sound. Now, of course, now we can record something and it can be really high fidelity and we can throw it into a digital mixing 
medium and spend eight months clearly mixing it. And uh, then you didn't have that luxury with tape and, and stuff then. So I, I definitely affiliate with now technologically, but I also, I think the songwriting and the sort of the, there was an innocence to the performances that went on recordings in the 60s and 70s. The cable maker and pedalboard builder, Kid Candelario, you know, he's almost all of us up here have either come across or own a significant amount of the cables he's made. And, and I have one pedalboard that he actually, he had me make under his tutelage. I've done a lot of stuff with him over the years, and I actually wish I could spend more time with him now than I, I have. But we worked on Phil's pedalboard that he used, you know, right around the Fairly Well time. And, um, you know, Kid doesn't need help, but he doesn't mind a second set of eyes when it comes to stuff being fleshed out. And so I was communicating with Phil a bunch about gear then. And so I really haven't had a lot of philosophical conversations. Most of the conversations I've had with Phil have been, you know, hey man, how you been? You know, that kind of stuff. You know, that, oh, you guys sounded great last night. Oh, you guys sounded great tonight. Bob's pretty much always in a, you know, in a, every time I've talked to him, it's been about, you know, gear and music and stuff. You know, and not even intentionally. It's not like I'm running after these guys and asking them gear questions. It's just those are the contexts in which we're meeting. Because we're musicians. Like, his paradigm, you know, Bob or Phil's paradigm is different than mine. But ultimately, we're musicians, and, and those are the scenarios in which we're crossing paths. First time I played with uh, Phil, I was probably more excited than nervous, but a fair amount of nervous, you know, going into it, just because I didn't want the guy to think I was a, a schlub. But, you know, same thing with Bob. We played this one show, there were like 100 people at this uh, club in New York, SOBs. Bobby was a surprise guest. Phil was announced, you know, like an hour before Doors just for fun. They were both in town for separate reasons. This is after Fare Thee Well. And here they were on stage with us. And uh, I remember I just, I, I was playing, I just, we were playing Mr. Charlie and we were really having a ball. Like everyone was having a good time and we had a good groove on it. I remember I came in for, for my lead and, you know, and just played what I played and, and, and then we moved on. But it's a blues tune, you know? So everyone's just sort of, uh, it's not required in a blues tune to, to have to tune into the other five players on stage just to make it jive you know and so that was a cool experience because they were just playing how they would play blues which was really you know nothing how i would have done it you know <laughs> you know because that's just, that's how i would do it and that's how they did it and so it's, it's been interesting the interesting thing in playing with them is that they do what they do more so than other musicians i've played with they do what they do regardless of what you do and if what you do works with what they do or allows them to do what they do better or, or what they do allows you to do what you do better, you know, whatever, however you want to look at it, then it jives and then, and then things happen. And that could happen in moments at a time. It could happen in tunes at a time. It could not happen at all over the course of a night. It's um, just like any other, other, any other group. And I've, with Cubensis and I've played with Stu Allen a bunch and, and I've, of course, I'm, the bulk of what I've done with that is, is the rhythm guitar stuff, is the Bobby stuff. And, um, Regardless of how much I've I've gotten into that, and it, you know, if you want to call it studying, study it. I'm never going to think exactly like him. I'm never going to be him, you know. And so my flavor is still going to come out, you know, in, in what I do. And I've played with guys that really closely emulate what um, you know Phil or Bob or Jerry do. And it's not necessarily a knock on anybody, but if you get it perfect, if you make it sound exactly like something like them, you know, ultimately what you're doing is regurgitating something you've already heard and what those guys don't really ever do is regurgitate something they've already heard 
they might, you know, try to incorporate something that they heard and conceptualized, you know, into it, but they're not like listening to another player and trying to copy it. In fact, I even asked Phil one time, said, what um, bass players were you listening to when you were getting into it? And, and which of them, did, and did you ever try to emulate any of them? And he actually, he quite literally had trouble answering the question because he even said verbatim, you know, the thought had never occurred to him to do so. And I just sat there and went, well, no wonder he sounds the way he sounds. You know, <laughs> he, he literally never thought to try to play like someone else. You know, whereas that's something that um, most people do. And so <laughs> getting on stage and, and, and playing with them, they're, they're going to play how they play, regardless of how you play. And if, you can, if it locks in, it locks in. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. And, you know, uh, the other thing that I, that I kind of knew as a musician before playing with them, and this is, this is, you wouldn't necessarily think of this right away, is they have what they're playing now. And you can't, you know, especially when you're playing with someone who you've listened to a lot more than you've played with, you can't evaluate it on what you've heard. You have to evaluate, evaluate it on what's happening. They don't play like that anymore. They've already played that music. They've already played that material and thought those thoughts and gone through that phase. And so it's not like we were going to get on stage and, and play playing in the band and the same kind of stuff was going to happen. You can find my uh, record on vinyl and CD for purchase on my website, alexjordanjams.com. You can follow me on Instagram at alexjordanjams, and of course I'm on Facebook. I'm just uh, you know, anxious to get music out to people and, and would love for to share music with people because I know music can be a really uh, grounding thing right now. It's just I'm happy to be a part of that, and I've been really thrilled to, to chat with you today. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting again in the future. <laughs>